Oh, LinkedIn's giving me trouble. There it goes. I got a check mark. All right. People are piling in. You can see the little eyeballs are, are popping up. Uh, Good. I'm going to roll the intro and then we're going to get started. All right. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. All right, everyone. I'm really happy today to be able to have Elliot come and join me live. Uh, just before we get started, though, I want to put out a big reminder because tomorrow is the first day of April. And for the first time ever for the month of April, I'm going to run a viewer survey. So if you wouldn't mind taking some time, go over to dcbsurvey.com. Just some general demographic information and questions about who you are, what your interest is in watching the channel, stuff like that to give me a better idea of who the audience is. I, I see things from the people who leave comments and thank you for that. Uh, but I, I wanted to survey the audience to just see who everyone out there is and what you're looking for so that I can improve the content and make things even better. And if you're relaxing on your couch right now because you like to watch me on your big screen or whatnot, just hold your camera up to that QR code. It'll lead you right to that survey at dcbsurvey.com. All right. Now that that's out of the way, Elliot, welcome for coming and joining me. Um, it's it's really great to have you uh, here today. It's good to be here. I'm excited about it, David. Well, you were supposed to be on a few weeks ago, but you ran into an internet problem at uh, where you live in Atlanta. Did uh, is all that sorted out now? Yeah, all that got sorted out. It was the worst time. I'm, I'm sorry I had to postpone, but I'm excited to get it going today. Oh, awesome. Well, I'm excited to have you. Um, to begin, I mean, I, I advertised that this was all going to be about due diligence and quality of earnings and stuff like that. But I think to begin, I'd like to have you introduce yourself to people and give us a little bit about your background and, and what has led you into being the owner of a business that helps to look at small and medium sized businesses. Sure. Um, I'm just a kid from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, so I, uh, I was an undergrad engineer. I call myself a reformed engineer. I went off to Harvard for business school, got a fancy MBA, got into private equity, um, kind of more family office oriented, sort of hands-on oriented private equity. Um, realized pretty quick that the name of the game in private equity is owning equity, not working for the people that own two and 20% of the equity. So I, I, I convinced a mentor to spin out with me and we started a, what we call an independent sponsor, which is basically like an independent private equity firm. And when my mentor retired, I went out as a self-funded searcher and through those sort of eight years in private equity and self-funded search, I realized I didn't like the diligence solutions that were out there for me. And I was a pretty educated buyer. And I saw that ETA programs and sort of general search funds were advancing in their popularity and more people who had less knowledge of the deal world than I did were going to be out in the world and they needed a better holistic solution. So I started Guardian to be the solution that A, I wanted when I was buying businesses, but B, the one I think the sort of market needed because new entrants into the market, I knew we were going to be competing against my former bosses that have spent 
30 years learning investing and we're still getting better each day. And I didn't want folks to get had. So that's sort of my pathway into, into this. Uh, thank you for sharing that. There's a, there's a few items I want to pick up there. Uh, but people are from all over the world are filing in. Here's someone, uh, John is, is saying hi from New York. And we've got Victor here who's tuning in from Nottingham over in the UK. Welcome aboard, guys. Thanks for joining us today. Um, when, when you say private equity to me, I know that every run-in I've had with anyone who is involved in private equity, um, you know, they do exhaustive due diligences. I mean, they really, you know, tear everything apart and look wherever they can. And they, they're probably being guided by past experience, having done other deals before in their history. And, and just the fact that you come from an engineering background, it would, it would seem to me that you've, you've been probably been trained to think in the, you know, uh, if this, then what, you know, kind of lines of, of logic when it comes to this stuff. Can you give us some examples of some of the, the diligence or examinations that you worked on back in those years? Sure. So um, the companies I worked for were generalists, but sort of industrial. So we looked at trucking companies, steel companies, um, distribution companies, oil and gas service companies. So we, those are the kind of deals we were working on. And then we did commercial diligence, which is sort of how strong is the market for the business? Operational, which is really how good is the operation inside the business? And then financial, which is the quality of earnings, do the earnings match up? So we did all of that analysis. Okay. And so today, when you do a quality of earnings report, that's what Guardian produces for people. Um, you know, for the people who have never seen one, what does it look like? It's obviously a document of some kind, but what sort of information is going to be found inside a quality of earnings report? So we tear down a business and look at it from all angles so that somebody can understand the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow, the working capital that the business needs, the lifeblood. But really, I would say for small deals, which is my specialty, the, the broker gives a kind of lofty point of view in the sim. And then I think we give you the real view in the QOE. So it goes through all kinds of line items, all kinds of things that the normal buyer wouldn't look at. And sometimes don't turn up anything, but by the time we finish, we've gone through so many sort of minute details of the business, things pop up so that we can let our buyers know. Okay, so things like examining if there's a customer concentration issue or, um, you know, one of the things that causes me the biggest headaches are these mismatches when people decide to report on cash basis versus accrual and, and, and it kind of skews the results from one period to the next. All of that. Plus small businesses don't report their financials accurately. Most times they do as good as they can for small budgets. So restating it in a way that is sort of consistent, um, also making sure that items that should be on the income statement and so therefore affect EBITDA are there versus items that should not affect EBITDA and are on the balance sheet. And also looking at trends. So are costs going up? Are payment terms getting worse? Does the business need more money? Or is there a CapEx challenge? And really making sure there's not some huge cliff that my client, the buyer, inherit. Okay. And so who typically, uh, um, 
you know, your clients obviously are people who are trying to buy a business, but I guess what would be the best description of the types of businesses that you're being engaged to do QAV reports on? HVAC, plumbing, e-commerce, um, sort of business services, a lot of like content websites or professional service firms like accountants and lawyers. Um, what else am I involved in? Manufacturing businesses, some construction businesses, um, some distribution businesses. It's it's pretty it's a pretty wide distribution of companies. You know, we focus on deals under five million bucks for the most part. So that's where we. Okay. And, and typically, what sort of EBITDA levels are we talking about? So for us, our average deal is probably a million and a half to $2 million in EBITDA, which surprises people sometimes. They think we do big deals and we do some occasionally, but like our average deal is probably a million and a half in EBITDA. So we, yeah. we service 90% of our business is to self-funded searchers, which I call like everyday business buyers, um, non-private equity, non-funded search, sort of people who have decided entrepreneurially to go buy a business. Okay. And, and so the reason why I wanted to bring that up is, is because, you know, I know that a lot of my viewers, I, I asked people to do, to fill in the survey, but I know that a lot of my viewers uh, are probably in the sort of main street to lower middle market space. And in that space, we don't hear a whole lot about quality of earnings reports. It, it tends to be sort of across that line in the middle, what I call the middle market. And I know everyone has different definitions of what these different, you know, tiers of the marketplace look like. But so the, we, we found out who is who's using you, um, what is their motivation? Is it because they don't want to make a mistake or are they being required to do this kind of analysis, perhaps by a lender? I don't know anybody that has a million dollars to lose. No? I don't. There's people on Instagram that have that kind of money. I see them all the time. Yeah, and I tell my girlfriend all the time, I don't think they're telling the truth, David. Um <laughs> Um, you know, a year ago, that was a popular talk track for deals under $2 million is a, is a QOE cost effective. And my response was, who's got a million bucks to lose? Raise your hand. Uh, I mean, if you want to make an investment, probably 10 times your second biggest investment, which is your house. And one of the most complicated asset classes there are small business cash flowing businesses. Um, in a negotiation and financing arena that you haven't spent any time in with SBA debt, leverage finance, leverage buyouts. If you want to do that on your own without a QOE or with like a makeshift, I kick some tires type stuff, um, may the Lord be with you. For my clients, they want to know what's behind the curtain. They're putting personal guarantees up on this debt most often. And it's mission critical that they're going to take that jump that they know what they're jumping into. And that's what we do. So for us, it's all about buyer has interest, has gumption, doesn't understand the asset. They're not going to learn how to evaluate the asset in the 90 days between LOI to close. So they hire me to help them understand the asset so that they know whether to buy it to not buy it or to buy it for a different price than what they offer because it's not what was presented in the sim. And then a lot of my clients, I, I feel embarrassed saying this on your, your large audience, but a lot of my clients don't even read the quality of earnings, right? What they're saying is, hey, Elliot, what do I need to know? 
And so our conversation is centered on that. Okay. So to get back to what you said earlier about how you look through the numbers and, and how small businesses often don't have the resources to do great financial statements, how often are you taking the financial statements and investigating them versus looking at the raw data that's been put into like a QuickBooks file or whatever and building your own set of financial statements? So I am a naturally non-trusting person. David. So what I say is that QuickBooks can be manipulated. Anybody who's ever used it for themselves or been a CFO knows that taxes can be manipulated. The bank statements can't. So you can't walk into Chase with five bucks, but say, hey, tell David it's a hundred bucks. So we use the conservatism of the bank statements to recreate the income statement. Um, and then we use the financials and the tax returns to sort of tie that to the balance sheet. And then we triangulate data with the, the 40 items that we asked for. We triangulate each piece of important data two or three different ways so that we're confident that the financials match the bank statements or the inventory list matches the balance sheet or the account receivable matches the invoice list. And so we, um, we're operating from a place of no trust, which can be difficult for clients to understand because Sometimes we'll ask questions and they'll say, oh, but the seller said that it's this. And I have to tell, I can't listen to the seller who's getting three to six times cash flow on this about the answer. I need to go get the data. Yeah. And, and you know, to, to the point about things that sellers say, uh, I've off, very often run into circumstances where sellers say things that they think are correct. And in fact, they're not. So, you know, one of the things, for example, uh, the seller's own compensation, it depends on how they're legally set up, but they might be taking a salary and getting, you know, a W-2 for that salary, or they may be taking dividends or, or what have you. And, and then there's a circumstance where some business owners just take like a regular draw every two weeks. And at the end of the year, the accountant reconciles it all into one of those two different buckets based on other tax considerations. And so when the seller says, I take this amount of money, it could be a true statement. But if that money has been recorded as a dividend issued, then it can't be added back on the P&L because it's part of the net income. It's already been counted. Yeah. And, and this kind of thing happens all the time. All the time. So I tell my clients, you know, there's, there's the truth. There's the truth that the seller thinks is accurate. There's the truth that the seller was not comfortable telling you that they didn't know. And then there's a sort of a malicious, purposeful lie. The last one you run away from. The others oftentimes, let's be honest, these sellers are not um, CPAs. They minimally pay accountants every year to do taxes. They know their cash bank account is sophisticated enough for them to spend the money they want. And then some cash flow fancy buyer walks in and wants to know EBITDA and cash flow and gross margin. And that's not the language they speak in. So it's like asking a high schooler about, uh, you know, how to how to pick a good spouse. You know, this person should not be sort of considered an expert in this question that you're having. And so a big piece is saying, hey, client, that statement was inaccurate. But you shouldn't expect that owner to know that question. Here's how you can interpret the data to understand what they meant. To your example, the seller said they took a quarter million out of the business, but they took 150 in dividends and only $100,000 to the income statement. 
So if you're trying to get to seller discretionary earnings, which a lot of people are, you add the $100,000 back, the 150 they took in dividends, you don't. A lot of people will try to double count that. A lot of brokers won't know either. And, you know, so 150 times four, you know, that's $600,000 in purchase price swing if you don't understand that. And, and, and yeah. trust, the first time you come back and say, hey, that's not how you get to SDE, the, the broker is not going to welcome that comment in open arms. So you really have to show people and prove it to them so that the, 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 the most reasonable client can get the impact of the information. A lot of what I do, David, is interpret this messy forensic accounting stuff into layman speak for the client or the broker so that we can move to the next step. Like you need to take $600,000 off a of purchase price because you can't add back that 150 times four that's 600K. Or um, the inventory here hasn't been counted. And so when you count it, it changes cost of goods sold, which reduces the EBITDA by X. And so therefore the purchase price by Y. Or um, these, these PPP loans that were forgiven are not free money from the government that's going to come every year. We can't we can't include those in EBITDA. So those are the kind of things that we talk to our clients about or speak to brokers and sellers about to help people get the right price. We've got a whole bunch of people in here that are that are piling in. We got Kevin who's joining us from Central Florida. Hey Kevin, how are you today? Um, also, a, a couple of comments here. Uh, Moncton Strong says, that's what I do in my business. I take a draw, then at year-end, accountant reconciles it best to manage the tax burden. Yep, I've, I've met a lot of people who are in that scenario. We had a question from Jordan, which, uh, great question. When in the acquisition process do you recommend starting a QOV? What's the typical timeline to complete this type of analysis? Great question. So as soon as you get assigned LOI, is the best time to start the QOE process because you're under the gun to close the deal in 60 to 90 days. So you need to get started right away. The best time to speak to someone like me is probably a week or two before a signed LOI to make sure I have capacity. I know who you are. Um, we can get signed up with an engagement letter. I can sort of um, do the deal that you want done at the price you want. So don't wait to the last second to, to get to know providers. And then the timeline is about four to six weeks. I'll say four to five weeks from when the seller provides us the due diligence information. So if I have a full data room, I'll finish the report in four weeks every single time. If it's a partial data room, it may take four to six weeks. And all that starts from when I get the data. Okay. And, and speaking of data, Dylan wants to know what are the most important documents that you ask for from the seller? Um, and maybe you can give us a little bit of an idea of just how often um, you you kind of really have to like keep digging, digging, digging to get the stuff that you're looking for, because that's one of the biggest complaints that I get is that people will ask for stuff in due diligence and it just takes forever to get delivered. So you have to be understanding that a good seller is running a profitable business every day. Mm hmm. And so what you may consider slow is as fast as they can move and not impact that EBITDA that you buy or want to see it close. The other thing people forget is because these sellers don't overpay their accountants, you might just say, hey, why doesn't your accountant X, Y, and Z? And I know that it's because the seller didn't pay that accountant to X, Y, and Z and, and, and is hoping that they can not pay that accountant 
And so that makes it come slow. So um, the things that we ask for financial statements, which are typically we want access to QuickBooks directly or whatever their financial system is, taxes, particularly for SBA loans, because the SBA is going to need them. My favorite bank statements because of the conservatism of the bank allows us to rebuild the income statement without having to really trust anyone. Um, some other things, general ledger, which is sort of like the behind the scenes income statement and balance sheet that we can triangulate data through, inventory lists, accounts receivable aging for how long is it taking clients to pay the company, which helps with working capital. And we do a more operational and comprehensive look so we have a section on sales and marketing that we ask. And we also talk a lot about debt to make sure we understand all of the debt the company has. Even if the buyer is not buying the debt, oftentimes you'll see loan to shareholder, from shareholder, or other wonky things in the debt that a buyer should know. So before going too deep, David, those are the main things we ask for. Well, and, and it's interesting because you can look at the history of debt, because if you have a company that claims that it's being profitable year after year after year, but debt levels are remaining unchanged, that they're not making a dent in that, then it kind of begs the question, where is the money going? You know, and and yeah, they could be just taking all the money out, but but it, it's not a normal thing because normally loans have an amortization of some sort and they should be being paid off over the course of time. That's it. Um, or why is the shareholder owner borrowing or no, not borrowing, investing a quarter million dollars into the business each year? Hmm. Why is that yeah. loan from shareholder on there? Why would a cash flowing business need a loan from the shareholder? So you start picking up on things that like Sesame Street, like one of these things doesn't fit with the others. And then you know what kind of questions to ask. Um, another question here. Uh, again, from Moncton Strong, how often do you uncover fraud or intentional misrepresentation uh, when people are uh, are making these, presenting this information? I would say about 20% of the time. So out of every five deals, one is sort of maliciously, um, purposefully fraudulent, trying to get over on a buyer and sick them in, into million dollar personal guaranteed debt and financial troubles, right? I would say another 40% on top of that, the EBITDA is materially off from what the broker SIM or the seller represents, which can be fixed with the change in price or structure, but is a different deal than what was expected. So about 60% of the time, there's something uncovered in QOE that either warrants the deal to be thrown out or warrants a price change or structure change. And, and that's why when you ask me sort of what's the benefit to doing it for deals under two million bucks, well, who can who can lose a million dollars because they missed something? I'll give you a for instance. Um, a lot of times people won't choose me, but we stay friends because I try to help buyers and I don't want anybody to have an issue coming back to me. I don't want any like I told you so moments. So I had a person that I was working with that were supposed to work with on a QOE. They decided to do it themselves. And then I saw on LinkedIn, they did the deal. I see on Search Funder, they did the deal. Congratulations. Like, no, it will. A year later, they emailed me like, hey, Elliot, um, I screwed up on the first deal. I missed $350,000 in bad debt. 
I'm going to explain bad debt in a second. On a million dollar deal and almost went bankrupt on it. I'm doing a second deal and now I know, gosh darn well, I need you. So now we're working together on this next deal. Let me tell you what bad debt is. Bad debt is, um, it wouldn't be David. Let's say I did business with Stephen and Stephen didn't pay. And Stephen maybe was banking with Silicon Valley Bank. And so their money wasn't right. And so instead of paying in 30 days, they tried to pay in 60, they tried to pay in 90. Now that 350K that they owe me, I don't think they can pay it. So it's what they call bad debt. But what it really means is a client who's not paying. So that would mean I would, as a buyer, need to put 350K of my own money into my business to fund the operation because my client didn't pay. And so that's what bad debt is. So I'm just giving you an example of what happens sometimes when people don't do diligence. Okay. And and so you talk about how one in five are intentionally trying to get something over on you. What percentage of the deals do you look at think have some like honest errors of people who just didn't really know what they were doing when they were keeping track of their financials information? 50% in the deal size that I deal with, which means, you know, and that's conservative. I laugh because we talk about cash or accrual basis for financials. Everything I've seen is a hybrid, David. It's cash, but they have accounts receivable, right? It's accrual, but they don't have inventory marked on their balance sheet or don't have AR on, on their balance yeah. sheet. It's, it's some sort of hybrid thing that makes sense for this seller, which I'm sure people are like gasping and clenching their, they're clenching their pearls on the, on the podcast, but it's not that far-fetched. Here's the thing. I'm a business owner. I don't overinvest to get my financials right every month. I spend the cash that my business creates. Um, but it takes somebody smart to be able to reconcile that stuff quickly into a picture that a wise buyer can consume. So half the time, there's material things in the financials that aren't presented correctly. And part of what we do is, is show those things correctly in the context of the deal without shoving it down the seller's throat because that's the quickest way to erode the relationship between my client the buyer and the most important person in these transactions the seller well you you talk about calculating uh ebitda or sde have you often had someone who was at an loi on a business that they thought was fairly priced based on a multiple of ebitda but then when you got into it and realized the degree of capital investment required in the business that you, you had to say to this person, look, using a multiple of EBITDA just doesn't make sense. There's a lot of stuff that has to be bought here. Can you talk about that sort of scenario? So in manufacturing companies and trucking companies, which could be tow truck or even um, like ambulance companies, um, that's where you see this the most. I had a client, their name was actually Elliot, um, great person. and they were looking at a manufacturing business and they they knew enough to know it was a multiple of EBITDA. So they're going off multiple of EBITDA three and a half, four times, simple stuff, right? But um, on a million dollars of EBITDA, some of these businesses needed a quarter million dollars a year of capital expenditure. What the heck is that? The cost to replace the trucks that you can't put on the road next year mm. in the simplest terms or whatever the investment is and in assets that you need for the next year to keep the business running. 
So now all of a sudden this basic metric, EBITDA multiple doesn't work. But now the challenge is, so Elliot, what are you telling me? The whole world says EBITDA multiples and I shouldn't use the EBITDA multiple here. And that's when I get into my very basic business school class of why do we use EBITDA? We use EBITDA because it's a lazy man's way to get a cash flow proxy on the income statement. What you're really buying is cash flow. You can't spend EBITDA. You can't go to the grocery store and buy an apple with profit, even on the income statement. You need greenbacks, cash. So cash flow is what you really are looking for. So a million dollars of EBITDA, but you need to invest a quarter million dollars each year is effectively $750,000 of cash flow. And you should be paying a multiple of that. And so unfortunately, this client didn't know that until they had already spent money on QOE and lawyers and even spent time talking to equity investors on a deal that what they say, then pencil at 750K that would have at a million dollars of EBITDA. And sometimes there's other things that um, that make it tough too. customer concentration. Well, yeah, it's a million dollars of EBITDA, but 75% of that is one client. The bank's not going to underwrite that. So you're going to need to structure this deal differently or a million dollars of EBITDA, but um, the seller is related to the congressperson in their district and they do business with the government and you won't be able to walk in there and get those sales so we try to reconcile stuff to here's the question my clients want to know david is the business worth what they're paying for it like forget all of that market is out there we use ebitda qoe the question that my clients want to know is the business worth what you're paying for it and that's what we try to answer you you mentioned customer concentration. Uh, Zach put a question in here. Wants to know what are uh, some of the other common red flags that uh, that you see from time to time. Well, I mentioned one: the seller is doing all the sales based on relationships that you can't duplicate. Mm -hmm. um, which isn't a financial thing, if you notice. Which is why our service is different than um, a typical CPA, is because as a deal professional. I know how to identify that and communicate it. Um, the business does not have a good grasp on working capital. Their inventory isn't tracked correctly. Their AR and AP isn't tracked correctly. They don't have active systems in that. So it's unclear what the working capital is that becomes a red flag. Um, oh, my favorite this year. The seller just paid a third party uh, new accounting firm to redo their financials in 2022 to clean them up. Bull hogwash. They just hired somebody to tell a story that they hope a buyer will uh, ingest and overpay. I even had a deal where it was a Canadian based company. Um, represented by a very popular uh, U.S. brokerage firm that notoriously overstates EBITDA. And that brokerage firm had brought in what they called a neutral third party, but really their pocket accounting firm to redo the financials in U.S. dollars versus Canadian dollars. Now, David, you and I know it's nothing but a conversion rate. Nobody has to redo the financials. What they had really done is they had baked 
the ad backs into the financials so that you could not determine what they were. They were sort of baked in. And so the Canadian financials didn't match the US financials. And the funky thing was, you think you just get both accountants, the broker and the seller on the phone and you can straighten it out. But here's why having a good diligence provider is important. On that call, David, nobody is incented to tell you the truth. The Canadian accountant can't um, roll over on their client. The new accountant can't roll over on the brokerage firm that brings them business. The seller authorized all of this, so they can't roll over. And the broker recommended it all. So you have to stand on the data in the spite of four people from reputable firms saying something else. So hopefully I answered the red flags, but also gave an example of like how difficult it can be to stand in that gap sometimes. Well, and your and your point about who the service providers are and who they're loyal to and who they owe a duty of, you know, a responsibility to is a valid one because very often um, there are these professional parties that are hanging around a deal um, and you know that they get, you know, even people like business appraisers who are always uh, having their name handed out by a banker, right? I mean, that business appraiser wants the banker to be happy and the banker is happy when they're writing lots of deals, right? Yep. And so you just, you have to wonder, like, are the motivations truly in line for my best interest? Um, and and that's something you, what is that uh, Latin expression, you know, que bene, like, you know, follow the money who benefits kind of thing. Like you, you need to be thinking about that all the time, I find. Man, so this your your listeners should love this because this is like real Wall Street private equity game baked into what everybody can do. In every deal that I've ever been a part of where it got complicated, what I did is I put on a whiteboard what was the selfish motive of every party at the table. Buyer wants to maximize how much money they get. So does broker because they get 10%. Accountant wants to not roll over on their um, client, the seller. Um, lender wants to only underwrite a deal that's correct. And so you put all these incentives on the board and then you sort of say, are people acting in the terms of their most selfish incentive or are they being more honest? And it helps you determine who you can listen to because you're right, if you miss the allegiance of a key party and choose to believe them or not check their stuff, you can miss stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Paul wants to ask about forecasts. So he says, do you review financial forecasts in combination with the QV to help validate the assumptions or are you just strictly focused on historical? What, what do you look at when you do your report? So I got beat up on Twitter over this. Um, I do both because I understand both. Um, most quality of earnings looks historical and we definitely have a sort of line of demarcation. Our standard quality of earning product is a historically looking product where we spend 5% of it trying to help a buyer think about what historical cash flows may not continue into the future. In our premium product, we actually do financial projections or evaluate them for our clients. And that just comes from my Harvard Business School deal world, understanding how to project financials. And what I tell people is the 
the the projection model that like Live Oak Bank or Huntington or Byline um, asked, they're doing it as a formality. The one that we're doing or checking is the one that's going to actually understand, can you pay down the debt? And so we spend more time on it. We're more critical of it. And so um, working with us, you can get that 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 service. And again, David, what I wanted to create with Guardian was a more holistic diligence solution because I thought the QOE was insufficient. Let me spend a minute on that, if you don't mind. Sure. So raise your hand if you're an accounting nerd. No hands went up. I, I like accounting stuff. Yeah, David, I, and I've spoken to you, which is why I like you. Because I just yeah. realized though, I just realized though that I also practice a hybrid between cash and accrual. See what I'm saying? Thanks, Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. So you're not an accounting nerd. Um, you're taking on a way more risk, and the quality of earnings work for me as a private equity professional because I spent eight years dissecting financials, looking at business cases up at Harvard on whiteboards, doing stuff, hanging with the private equity kids. And so I could take historicals, do my projections and interpolate all the information because of my background. My typical client is a first time buyer, Main Street person, Kansas City, you know, Salt Lake City, Utah, middle Indiana, um, who has the gumption to do a deal. When you show them a QOE, they're like, uh, EBITDA, work, what do I do with this? It's not enough. So for us, we said, hey, look, diligence as a more comprehensive umbrella is that question i said is the business worth what you're paying for it that's a qoe plus some basic operational knowledge plus some context of sort of what are reasonable projections based on the information that we have so somebody can look at here's the historical picture here's the go forward picture with all the volatility that can happen there and here's sort of the operational picture um and, and so we, we look at it more holistically because, and I'm not the only one that does QOEs at this level that says this, the people at this level need a more complete solution because they have sort of incomplete backgrounds relative to professional business buyers. But then I tell people all the time, my private equity bosses never had personal guarantees on the debt. My clients personally guarantee the debt. So it matters even more that we get it right for them than even for Warren Buffett. Like Warren doesn't personally guarantee his debt. Elliot's clients do. And so we, yeah. we work hard to protect our clients because the downside hits them more significantly. Like if Warren makes a bad bet, his investors aren't happy. If my client makes a bad bet, they may spend five to 10 years in financial ruin. And so we wanted to be more comprehensive. Hopefully that wasn't too deep, but I wanted so to- it's a great thing to bring up, and you're talking about the lack of experience that some of these buyers have, the searchers have. One of the questions I'd written down for myself before we started was, what are some of the big misconceptions that some of the searchers have that you run into? So uh, sort of a, a, a different or incorrect idea of what they're going to be going through or what the process should entail. I'm going to be a bit funny and trite here because this stuff will either resonate with people listening or won't based on if it's them or not. So I'm not taking it lightly. I'm just trying not to put anybody to sleep. So one misconception is because somebody has seen an income statement, they understand the income statement. 
because somebody has seen a balance sheet, they understand a balance sheet. It was probably five years after I saw my first income statement of balance sheet when I really understood what they meant. Um, and that was five years of intense study. Most of my clients don't know. Um, a second one is that my misconception that people understand cash or accrual reporting in financials, which if I asked 100 of my clients to define it, it would probably be the funniest talk show the world's ever seen and how different the stuff they said would actually be and how far it would be away from the truth. Um, the third would be that any buyer can take over any seller's business and operate it. I think folks who are that wear nice collared shirts like you and I have tough times with blue collar workforces. I think guys that are used to blue collar workforces have difficulty with white collar workforces. And I think people who are used to strictly corporate environments have a learning curve to get into entrepreneurial environments. And that becomes a challenge. I think the other misconception and probably the biggest one. So sorry for waiting the last to say it, that because somebody says something, it's the truth. Because in corporate, if I'm at Home Depot, right? And I say the shovels cost $10. I'm saying that with the brand name of Home Depot, the backstop of this big brand, HR in the mix to play referee, and recourse if I habitually misrepresent things inside the corporate structure. When I'm a seller who's going to get three to five times whatever lie I tell, there's no referee for what I'm saying. And so people will, I had a client last week, David, listen to the seller and the broker so much on their deal that they essentially called our quality of earnings analysis incorrect because the seller didn't agree with it. I ended up having to let that client go because I couldn't put my brand name behind the decision they might make on that. But that's a common misconception that, well, the seller and the broker said it, the seller's a C, I mean, the, uh, the broker's a CPA, the seller knows their business. How can I not believe it? And, um, you can't believe it's it. a kind of it's a kind of Stockholm syndrome or something. You know, it's it's people who haven't negotiated in the free air, man. Like I, I talk about, like for a lot of my clients who are coming out of corporate, their best negotiation was getting fifteen percent increases on their salary on an offer letter. That was like go to Vegas. You know what I mean? Like woo! For us entrepreneurs, we know that you can be plus or minus three hundred percent on a negotiation in free air. The way you present something can make it sort of three, 300 times or three times in the negative or three times in the positive. And so when you don't have it baked into your psyche to verify everything, it's very easy to get mixed up because then you've heard four different stories around the same data points and as a person who might not check everything, you don't know what to believe, which confuses you, which pushes you to believe the easiest thing. Whereas us as a sort of diligence and sort of um, diligent and disciplined provider are only telling our clients what the data can prove. It goes back to my engineering stuff. Like does the chart actually match the equation or is the data 
I um I like what you said about how it took you a few years after you saw your first balance sheet to really understand, you know, what the balance sheet was. And and I'm just thinking about how uh, I sort of woke up one day uh, while looking at a balance sheet and suddenly realized for the first time how it actually tells the story of risk and resiliency in that particular business. Like just how bad can things get for before this thing would finally topple over? Like, yeah. you know, and, and when you're looking at how much debt there is versus the equity and what the mix of the assets are and, you know, how how much of it is it like current stuff versus fixed and 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 you're right like in the beginning you're just like well this is where these things are listed it just this reconciles to this account and it goes like this but then to really look at it and i think what what caused me to have the revelation was when i had a, a talk with a banker one day who was talking about debt to equity ratios and how they were a f- reflection on long-term risk in doing a deal that the bank was going to make and i had never looked at it in that way before i've always you know, sort of looked at it from the point of view of like uh, buying a house, you know, that loan to value. Sure. Um, and the, and the, the reason I later realized, um, you know, the, the reason um, when you look at a home purchase, you look at loan to value as a percentage of the asset. When you look at a business or a bank looks at a business loan, they look at debt to equity. And so if you look at the difference between um, a uh, 80% loan to value would be a four to one debt to equity. A 25% loan to value, uh, sorry, I got the backwards there. 80% loan to value loan would be a, a four to one debt to equity. A 75% value loan would be a three to one debt to equity, right? And so literally the difference between three and four uh, is uh, 33%. From the bank's point of view, an 80% loan is 33% riskier than a 75% loan. And this is why they look at it in terms of debt to equity ratio versus loan to value. It's it's a whole different mentality that is based upon you know hundreds of years of bankers making bad loans and then going back and saying, what happened on this deal? How can we make sure we correct our behavior for next time? And it, it just sort of informs this whole culture or discipline within that industry about how you go about doing this stuff safely. Couldn't agree more. And then the thing that pulls so many folks to this industry is also the thing that makes it so difficult. We're talking about 10% down deals. We're talking about 90% debt, 10% equity deals. Yeah. And that 10% equity is sometimes half true cash equity and half seller note put on standby. So that's a 5%, 5% equity, 95% debt, highly leveraged transaction which means it's very risky. The only reason a bank would do it is because the government's guaranteeing 75 to 90% of that debt. That doesn't mean you can't, you know, stub your toe and screw up and put yourself in a real tight position. You can lose your whole equity in one year of a downturn. Um, and, and, and a lot of people don't quite get that. And, and it's this bias towards past performance will somehow continue that you, that you mentioned earlier when you're talking about red flags. Um, here's a great question from Mark, uh, from the audience. How do you handle Q of E costs for broken deals? Sure. So we do it in a unique way that's sort of born out of my experience being a self-funded searcher. So our, our work takes four weeks. We prorate the fee over the four weeks. So if the deal dies in week one, you owe us one quarter, 25%. 
week two, half, and so on. But we also add another thing. So we do an executive summary review one weekend. So we kick the tires, we look at the um, financials, the bank statements, the, the key data, and we catch typically about 80% of the deal breakers in that first week. And we present the executive summary to our clients. And one of two good things happens. So one, we highlight something that should make the buyer run away. They stop the deal and they save, you know, three quarters of the fee that would pay me. So that's how we handle broken deal fees there. If instead the numbers do pencil at the executive summary, we give the buyer the confidence to start other conversations that we know they're having. You can you can go visit the seller a second time now because you're pretty comfortable with the numbers. You can go start paying a lawyer because we know that's next. You can start having more conversations with your lender. And so we use the prorated amount to make it simple. We use the executive summary one weekend to mitigate that deal fees. But we do something extra is that we we want our buyers walking forward with confidence. And so we also give them that knowing the other work streams that they're handling. Okay. We had a, a question uh, from Mark who wants to know about undeclared revenue. He says a seller talked about $200,000 in cash annually, about 12% of sales, I'm guessing that means, that flowed through the business, not on the books. We ignored this in the valuation. Is that a deal breaker? Is it common? Will the QOV catch this? Or how do you handle it when people are talking about undeclared cash involved in a deal? I, I know how I handle it with my clients, but I'm curious to know what you say. So there's a couple of angles here we're going to have to cover. First, if it's not running through the books, you wouldn't know it unless the seller told you more than likely. So but the seller is incented to tell you because that two hundred thousand dollars of revenue is going to drop dollar for dollar down to EBITDA. And so at a four X multiple, that's eight hundred thousand dollars of purchase price. So they're going to tell you. Now, the thing is, how do you validate it? Um, you validate it now, all of a sudden, if it didn't run through the business, what banker saw it? Because I don't want to hear about two hundred thousand dollars that uh, no banker saw. So maybe you didn't run it through the business bank account, which is a really bad no-no. You ran it through your personal account, let's just say. But now we have to diligence your personal account seller if you want that $200,000 included in the purchase price. Now, you might not. That's okay. But if you want it, now we have to diligence it. So I don't think it's a deal breaker. Deal breakers to me are mishandlings of the truth, malicious lies, gross negligence. Um, there's, there's unsavory things that smell bad. This is one of those that you can get right. Essentially at the end of the day, the last five times that's happened, the buyer and the seller had to make a bet on that money. And typically what they did is that sort of like a great opportunity for earn out or a larger seller note to say, Hey, look, if I see that same $200,000 coming through next year, I can pay you for it. If I don't, I won't that prevents us from having to argue. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I say to people too, is it's, it's gotta be something completely warranted by the seller in some kind of language in an offset clause in a note. So that if it does not in fact materialize that it's not a part of the business purchase price that you're going to end up paying for. Um, what about a, a decline in business stress test? Like, do you examine, you know, potentially what break-even points might be? What kind of what kind of battering the the business might be able to take before things get really bad for the new owner? 
So on our premium product where we do financial projections, one of the first things we talk about is, is twofold at the highest level. EBITDA ain't cash flow. So we start from EBITDA, that million dollars, and you know, take interest out, take taxes, take principal payments on the debt, and get down to cash flow, which may be four hundred thousand dollars when all said and done, whatever the number is. So now we're talking about cash flow that you can pay somebody with. And now um, what we say is sort of how much revenue would need to go down for you to not be able to pay off your debt. And what people don't sometimes recognize is that in a lot of businesses, you won't be able to get rid of anyone if the revenue goes down $400,000 because the unique skills of your employees, there's not overlap. So like on this $400,000 cash flow business, you may only have $400,000 of revenue fluctuations in a year before you can't pay your debt. And so we do talk about how tight um, you are in terms of being able to pay things off. And also sort of if you get into a tight situation, what could you do? Could you pay some vendors more slowly? Could you collect cash from clients quicker? Could you sell long term um, contracts on future work to get you out of a cash crunch? So what are your remedies for these you know, unforeseen things? But probably, you know, as an entrepreneur, you are going to look at the hockey stick. But we push a lot of people to look at how bad can it get before you, you blow up? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, obviously this changes business by business because it depends on how much of a component the direct costs are in the, in the revenue, right? If it's a, a wholesale trade business, obviously sales go down. So do costs to, to a large extent. Um, we have a question from Jordan about ad backs. Um, what are some common ad backs that you find that you think are not acceptable? And what are some of the weirdest ones that you've seen? The cash the seller takes off the balance sheet is not added back for a seller's discretionary earnings, but I promise you every broker will add that. Off the balance sheet? The distribution. Like, like a sailboat or something? Um, the distribution, sorry. So um, the we talked about it earlier. The quarter million dollars the seller took out of the business, $100,000 was run through salary on the income statement. $150,000 was taken in distributions out of the bank statement. Let's ignore that whole accountant reconciled at the end of the year. Let's just say it was what it was. Most brokers are going to put that extra 150 taken off the balance sheet as seller earnings. They're going to add it back and you're going to multiply four times it to get to, you know, your $600,000 of cash. You had no business paying the seller. That's one that's often full swing. We're getting away from it now, but the PPP loan, the PPP loans, um, are still in three-year average financials. And so those should be considered one-time revenue and should not affect EBITDA. So they're added back often and shouldn't be. And sometimes you really have to dig to realize that they're not. Um, I laugh at this one. Failed hires or failed vendor experiences. So I had a-, a Advertising that didn't work. Bro, are you serious? So I had a- like 30 year marketing veteran selling a marketing business to one of my clients who said, Hey, this hundred thousand dollars of marketing that we spent didn't pan out. So you wouldn't need to spend it next year. But I said, if you're an expert and you made that mistake, my client's not nearly as smart as you. 
he's going to make that mistake or worse. So we're not adding that back. But that was one that a lot of people would have missed. The weirdest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, look, and this is a warning to everyone. There are some brokerages right now that will add 100% of operating expenses back and force you to fight for every dollar that's actually an expense. And it cracks me up sometimes when I'm looking at, so you mean to tell me you only think the cost of goods sold are real expenses in this business? Every dollar of operating expense can be added back, but that's that's out there. The other thing that we laugh about on Twitter quite a bit, um, the wife that works part-time but doesn't do anything that really is the backbone of the whole business, does everything actually, um, that's another one you have to watch out for. Yeah. I, the, 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 the craziest one or the craziest uh, scenario I ever saw actually was a business that's doing cash-based accounting and they have to order minimum lots of inventory that were quite large. Yeah. And um, in one year, they didn't happen to order any, any inventory. So their cost of goods sold was zero that year. And uh, just because they didn't buy inventory and uh of course, they put a heavy weighting on that year because it was such a great performing year. Right? Sure. It's just some of the stuff you see is just crazy. Um, let's I want to ask you about this word. Uh, Mark asks, how often are you used to buyers needing to retrade a deal based on the Q of E uh, or the required bank valuation? Uh, the word retrade has kind of a dirty connotation to it. Do, do you differentiate between retrading or renegotiating? Like, And let's talk about the word before you answer Mark's question. I don't. And I think I don't even like putting dirty next to it. I think it's necessary. Mm. Um, and I've I've had this discussion in public forums emphatically to the benefit of my clients, because I don't care about what everybody else thinks. And I've been in this longer than a lot of people. So, Mark, it's your money, bro. So if the EBITDA is down, it was misrepresented in the materials that you use to put a valuation on the business. You change the price. If you go buy a used car based on it, never being in an accident and the engine and transmission working and you get there and the engine's clunking and the transmission's about to go, you pay the same price. No, you retrade. And so I don't think it's a dirty word. I know that people get, in their feelings about it but but here's what happened so private equity gave retrading a really bad name because people would retrade for no reason they would lock up deals under letter of intent specifically to retrade just because they had leverage in the small and medium business world people are main street folks this doesn't happen and so a lot of brokers have the taste of bad private equity stuff in their dna and so they get frustrated but that's not the reality in the smaller deals. So if you see, that's why I encourage everybody to put the EBITDA and the working capital that they base their valuation on in the letter of intent so that the multiple is in the letter of intent. So if $100,000 comes off of EBITDA, it's very easy to see what the new price should be. Um, I think you should retrade, it's your money. Whether you retrade dollar for dollar and also whether you retrade in price or structure. You may just move, say, $100,000 shift in EBITDA, four times multiple, 400000 bucks. You may move 400000 bucks to an earnout as opposed to adjusting the price. But 
it's really important that you pay for the asset as you understand it at the end of diligence, not as you were presented at the beginning. The, the only thing, Mark, that you should be doing as a buyer is making an offer that works for you. It's up to the seller to decide if they're going to participate with that offer and take advantage of the opportunity to exit that you have created for them. Um, are you okay for time? We're running up on the hour here. No, okay. Got we got uh, another really great question from a viewer. At what point is the amount of ad backs not worth the effort to dig into the business? I'm seeing Sims with ad backs that range from 20 to 50% of the SDE. Um, Those are hardworking brokers. That's a heavy show. Mark, thanks for asking that question. I think we've actually spoken before. Um, so I talk about it uh, being more icing than cake. You know, when you when you go to the birthday party and it's like you get this cake and it's like, man, it's like three quarters icing. <laughs> I wanted some cake. Um, I think one of the things buyers have to do is look at the ad backs immediately and put a believability weighting on them based on the broker, the situation, whatever. Right. Um, I don't think there's any amount of ad backs that are too much. I think there's there's. There's sort of the what to do ultimately, but then what to do at the beginning phase. And I'm going to focus on what to do at the beginning phase because um, in sports, they say play to win. And I think deals can be analogous to sports. So if the if the broker said it a million dollars to EBITDA, but $600,000 are ad backs, right? You may not believe all the ad backs, but if you want to win the auction, if there is one, you may actually price your your offer off of the million dollars. But you should say this specifically in your offer to your broker and your seller. I am assuming all six hundred thousand dollars of these ad backs check out in diligence. I'm not really sure or confident that's the truth, but because you presented it, I'm going to make my offer based on that. Um, if some of these are wishy-washy or you might not want to bet on them, we may want to have that discussion now rather than later. And let me tell you why you would do that versus the other. If you instead say, the SIM said a million dollars to EBITDA, I see $600,000 of ad backs, I'm going to cut them in half. So you say 300. So you got your 400 plus your 300, 700,000. So I'm going to alter the EBITDA significantly, 30%. Then I'm going to apply a multiple and I'm going to put my offer in a pool full of people who weren't that smart, diligent, aware. So I'm going to lose a bunch of auctions with brokers who might not be um, aware enough, really, to understand that your offer is actually the best one. And, and as much as you'll try to explain that to the broker, if you think about who the broker is in that moment, they get five to 10 percent of the offer. So they like those bigger offers, too. So you're, you're really swimming upstream if you try to negate or ding addbacks too soon in the process. Now, what I would say is as soon as the LOI is accepted, I would immediately go to the addbacks to validate them because you don't want to spend two months just to find out they're hogwash and the seller won't accept the adjusted price. But I do think at the LOI stage, you might just have to sort of not not smell it just yet and and put your best offer in is, is my recommendation i i uh i particularly like these kinds of businesses for some of my clients 
uh, because what I've found over time is that when there's a high proportion of ad backs, um, even though you could do diligence and investigate and find that they are totally legit from your point of view, um, oftentimes bankers won't accept them all. And so what the person has done is they basically turned their business into an unbankable business, which means that you are probably going to be able to maneuver the whole thing into a, a much higher percentage seller financed deal, um, which has a whole slew of other advantages for a buyer. And you can, of course, then make it subject to offset and basically warranty um, all of those different ad backs and things as you go. I think that's a great strategy. And I'll also say this because we're in 2023 for the past three to five years, it's been very, it's been a seller's market. So some of the stuff David and I would recommend you do has been hard to do because buyers have been paying extraordinary prices for mediocre businesses, in my opinion, oftentimes. Lots, lots of drunken sailors with full wallets out there. Yeah. Um, 2023. Um, I'm not predicting the future. I'm just saying this year feels way more like the years when I first got into the business, 2009, 2010, where the smart buyers are going to win out. And so what David just said is brilliant. If you see a lot of ad backs, recognize the bank's not going to take them all. Use the bank as your stick to fight with the seller. I, I would have accepted it, but the bank won't. And I can't finance the deal based on cash flow. The bank won't accept. I mean, they're smarter than me. We got to sort of go with what they say. Get your bigger seller note, get your better structured deal, still do your work. You'll know that the ad backs are probably reasonable, but get the deal structured in a way that's advantageous for you. So it's it, it really means that even messy stuff in these deals can be played to the advantage of the buyer. Uh, one last question here before we, uh, two last questions. Um, of the deals you look at, how many of them would you buy? Ooh, that's a good one. Probably 60, 65%. Okay. I'd buy. Like two, three, yeah, that's okay. Um, and sure. then my last question is, for the people that are buying much smaller businesses, so let's call it Main Street with a couple hundred thousand dollars of, of SDE, um, who don't have the budget uh, for, for engaging someone to do a QV, what would be some of the bits of advice you might be able to give to someone who's in that sort of scenario? I'm going to speak to you folks like you are my best friend. Um, and you're not going to like what I'm saying, but I'm not saying it just because I sell services because you might not pay for mine because I'm not the cheapest in the market. Go get some money to do diligence. Why? $300,000, $200,000 times four is 800, whatever, we're close. You're almost at a million bucks. Um, there are, they're kind of hard to find, but there are some really great stories of people who didn't do diligence that lost a million dollars. I just told you about a client who's using me now who decided not to on the first deal because they felt the same mm -hmm. way. And they lost two years and almost all their money on a million dollar deal because they didn't understand what bad debt was go get the money you know um you can do a quality earnings light which is a lighter version of the work you can do what's called a proof of cash that is uh i'm not going to go into the details it's on my website you can go through what that is but here's what you don't want to do you bought a house for a quarter million dollars that zillow uh 21st century all these places put a value on on the internet and playing sites so you knew it was worth a quarter million dollars 
Now you're buying something that's a quarter million dollars of cash flow that you're paying four times for. It's a million dollar asset. Nowhere on the internet is it valued by anybody with any reputation. So you're going to go out here and value it yourself, put up a million bucks of personal guarantee. And because you're short on cash, you're going to take that extra bet, the biggest one you've ever made, and just hope that it pans out because life works out for people or you think the seller is honest or you feel good about it. No, you don't. You feel good about going from six figures to seven figures, and you shouldn't trust yourself to be objective when you're doing that. You should bring people into your process that can tell you no objectively so that you only make that bet if it makes sense for you and your family. I don't want to get into stories I've heard of folks who were short five or $10,000, didn't do diligence and lost a million bucks. If you just think about that bet as Elliot's your best friend, it don't make no sense. Go get 10,000 bucks from somebody, borrow from your mom, from your friend, get an equity investor to put in 10K, give them some economics. Do your diligence because you, you can't make million dollar bets without checking things, not in this market. Well, and I, you know, to your point here, um, you also shouldn't be putting your last nickel into a deal. So if you're if you're buying a business and the equity investment required between you know the down payment and putting some startup or some operating capital into your new entity, for example, if it's an asset sale, should not leave you broke. Um, you always need to have additional resources. There is always something that is going to happen that is unforeseen in the world of business. And it could mean that you might not be able to write yourself a paycheck for a month. It could mean that you have to find some other money to fix something that broke. I just spoke to, remember the big cold snap we had a couple of months ago that went all the way down to Texas? Yeah. I just spoke the other day with a, a car wash owner that had almost $200,000 worth of repairs because of frozen pipes in his car wash in a part of the country that doesn't normally see freezing weather, right? Right. And, and, we didn't get into whether he was insured for that or not, but it caused a three-month closure of the business, which he likely was not insured for, you know, business interruption. And so you always have to have extra resources. You should not be putting your last nickel into a deal. The, this is the riskiest asset class that there is. Uh, in my in my program, Business Buyer Advantage, I have a whole module about Exter's Pyramid of Liquidity. Uh, which is a, a methodology for understanding risk and how money flows in times of, of turmoil and panic. And small businesses are at the riskiest band of that pyramid. Um, so many different things can go wrong between competitors' actions, customers' actions, government regulation, changes in you know banking, changes in... There's so many different forces that can come into play in the world of small business. And this ultimately is why they sell for relatively low multiples compared to every other kind of asset class there is out there. So do not buy a business when you're broke and don't make yourself broke in doing a transaction. You do something that is a leveling up move for you that you can do comfortably and still have some dry powder in case something goes wrong. And I say it like this to make it simple for the Main Street folks. You wouldn't buy a $20,000 car from your neighbor without taking it to your mechanic? Would you buy a million dollar business without getting it checked out by an expert? If, if that's how you're thinking about it, neither David nor I can help you. And that's not to be flippant or um, downtrodden. There are people who have gotten lucky in my opinion and done it without, but if you wouldn't bet 20,000, don't bet a million without having an expert look at it. You mentioned your website. Where can people find you online, Elliot? 
guardiandudiligence.com. If you even get close to that spelling on Google, I think I've done good enough to point you to me. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Elliot E. Holland or the King of QOE. And I'm very easy to contact either place. And uh, we have a great library of free resources on our website. So you should go check it out. Awesome. And hang on there. I'm going to be right back with you, Elliot. But for everyone else out there, I want to thank you very much for having tuned in. And we're going to sign off here with uh, a word from today's video sponsor and uh, some reminders about uh, all the different ways you can keep in touch with me. Special thanks go to today's video sponsor, Mark Willis of Lake Growth Financial. Mark helps people better manage their personal wealth and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've gotten lots of positive feedback from people I've worked with over the years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find a playlist of all the interviews I've done with Mark and to learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up to arrange a conversation about what this solution might look like for you. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com. You'll find hundreds of articles and videos all for free. You'll find links to my books and online courses, and you can sign up for my email list and get emails covering topics that interest you and be notified of new videos. This episode of Small Business and Deal Making is brought to you by smbpodcastnetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet, which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. And if you've discovered us today via the network, then I hope you're enjoying the show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss any one of our great episodes.